Hello, and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. And I'm Emily Fraser-Voigt, deputy editor for DerivSource. We relaunched our podcast with a new format at the beginning of this year, and this month we're looking back at some of the highlights from those interviews. Yes, so you are listening to snippets from past podcasts from 2018 so far. You can listen to all of these podcasts in full via our podcast page on DerivSource.com. In our first podcast this year, we spoke with Christian Lee and Nadine Jatto of financial markets consultancy Catalyst about how firms were preparing for Brexit and especially the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. I think as we are now in 2018, we are very much seeing firms' plans being executed now. The assumptions that were being made about possible hard Brexit have indeed manifested across pretty much consistently across most of the, uh, the clients we see. Certainly the major banks and institutions are working on the basis that they need to cater for this, the possibility of being sudden, um, a transition period being fairly minimal. And as a consequence, we are now seeing these plans being executed. Indeed, the DTCC recently announced plans to open a new office in Dublin, Ireland, to extend its European presence ahead of the UK's withdrawal from the EU. Now, one of the main issues we discussed in this podcast was the future of euro clearing post-Brexit. We remain of the view that there is no reason why LCH, for example, cannot continue to provide that euro clearing. And there there is no reason why there can't be the regulatory safeguards to ensure that that continues. However, you know, the debate has very much centred on the the political desire for some of the European centres to be able to claim euro clearing locally. And it is still quite possible that elements of euro clearing will take place on in continental Europe. Um, as far as contingency plans, I mean, we know that, for example, UX have new arrangements in place uh, and incentives in place to increase their OTC business, which would, of course, be out of Frankfurt. We haven't heard of any specific plans for LCH, for example, to move for certainly the swaps business into ClearNet, for example. There's been some talk about maybe the Euro repos being centred in, in Frankfurt. That seems to be a if you like a negotiating chip for LCH. Happy for repo clear to, to be in, or Euro repo clearing to be uh, out of France, but looking to retain Euro swap clearing in London. But, you know, the, the clients are obviously looking at what that might mean and whether they need to either dust off their UX memberships or, or indeed start putting a new business into the solutions that would be based in wherever the clearing ends up. As with all things, it's the market participants are not keen to bifurcate their books and the costs of that would ultimately be passed down to the end user. So the economic case is quite clear that it's preferable for as much of your clearing activity to be centered in one, in one location. But, of course, we know that the, these political considerations may trump these um, economic and market forces. 
Yes, the idea that positions could be simply moved over to EU CCPs is impractical. But in the event that the EU does deny the recognition of UK CCPs, there will be serious impacts to market risk, operational challenges, and we could see liquidity drying up. There's absolutely no market benefit and the transfer of legacy portfolios from UK CCPs that are not recognised to EU CCPs will make the whole business much more expensive due to the extra collateral banks will have to hold and less efficient due to the replication and duplication of systems and data. Just talking on the Commission's proposals on EMIR 2, which covers non-EU CCPs, we welcome the European Parliament's intention to scale back on the powers that the Commission have granted the ECB. Basically, the ECB want additional supervisory reach over non-EU CCPs. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable assumption, but the way the Commission proposals are written at the moment, it sort of gives them the ECB total discretion. So we will welcome that the Parliament's actually scaling back on that and actually will factor in market stability and the market benefit of actually denying recognition of um, non-EU CCPs. We took up the theme of Brexit and Euroclearing again in a later podcast interview with Corinna Shemp, who is responsible for European policy and regulation at the Futures Industry Association. She talked about the FIA's view on forced relocation of clearing to European CCPs and the potential economic impact this would have. So fundamentally, a location policy will be harmful to all stakeholders by increasing cost, and there is also potential that markets will destabilize. I think it's fair to say that everyone, including the European Commission, if we look at their impact assessment, agrees that forced relocation would fragment liquidity and raises the cost for end users. And this especially for EU 27 end users that use the relevant CCP to manage their risk through derivatives cleared at such a CCP. We outlined um, in various positions in the past that uh, forced relocation of uh, euro-denominated clear derivatives through the use of derecognition mechanism would be a disruptive and expensive approach to overseeing third country CCPs and EU end users likely would suffer a significant increase in cost and a loss of liquidity as a result of any forced relocation as actually then those players will end up accessing a smaller part of the bifurcated euro-denominated derivative markets. In addition, there would be fragmentation between euro-denominated derivatives cleared in the EU and non-euro-denominated derivatives which are likely to continue being cleared actually outside the EU, so at LCH Clearnet. This fragmentation of market would have an adverse effect on systemic risk. What we believe, for example, by negatively impacting a CCP's ability to successfully port or auction client positions of a defaulting clearing member, or by reducing access to alternative locations for clearing, so risk protection mechanisms and products uh, will be made more expensive. It's also a challenge for actually supervisors. So there are others, what our members report, it's um, the, the need to repaper. Some of our members have hundreds and thousands of clients. Time is a problem. It takes a significant time as well for our firms to make those changes. 
there is operation complexity attached to it. Swaps contracts are usually entered into for longer period of time. There are also various challenges uh, of moving legacy contracts. Another hot topic this year was whether the temporary clearing exemption for pension funds would be extended. Now, ESMO announced in July that despite heavy lobbying in favour of an extension, the clearing exemption would in fact not be extended and pension funds will have to start clearing OTC derivatives contracts on 17th of August 2018. Back in March, we spoke about this with Caroline Escott, who is the Investment and Defined Benefits Policy Lead at the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association, or PLSA. While she hoped at the time that the extension would be granted, she also had this to say about challenges on the bilateral side of the market. Because there are various capital and liquidity rules in place for banks since the financial crisis, which prioritise the holding of cash as opposed to other types of collateral such as high-quality government bonds, even though pension schemes might be going to the banks for their OTC derivatives contracts, we are now seeing a greater push from the banking side towards insisting upon cash as variation margin. So pension schemes are having problems in both areas. So a permanent exemption does not deal with the bilateral side of things. One of the other solutions that's currently being looked at is whether or not you can work with the CCPs to try to overcome some of the operational difficulties that they have in terms of not wanting or not being able to deal with holding high-quality government bonds or other types of collateral as opposed to holding cash as variation margin. There have been a lot of conversations on these kinds of fronts. It's difficult at the moment to see whether there's a workable solution, but that's something else that I know is being considered by the people who are looking at this. Going back to the bank capital side of things, one thing that we would be extremely interested in seeing and extremely keen to see would be for there to be some kind of alteration of the bank capital rules, which means that they become just as willing to hold high-quality government bonds as collateral as they are as cash, so that would help deal with the issues on that side of the market. Two important EU regulations came into force this year, MIFID II in January and GDPR in May. Firms have had to bolster their reporting capabilities to comply with MIFID II, taking in and storing more customer data than ever. However, they face fines of up to 4% of annual turnover for failure to comply with GDPR's strict new data protection requirements. We interviewed John Schaffner, partner at GD Financial Markets, a division of legal and professional services firm Gordon Dads, about the potential for friction between these two directives. So the regulators are coming out saying that the rules are not incompatible with each other. And one of the issues that we have with GDPR, the regulatory text, a lot of it is still open to interpretation. There's quite a lot of gray. The regulation is principles-based as well, which adds to the, the interpretation piece. So what's going to be very telling is post 25th of May, when firms need to start demonstrating compliance, is when we start getting legal precedent around some of the clauses and the 
I guess, the spirit of what the regulator is intending through those clauses. So it could well be that what might not seem incompatible today, that view might change as, I guess, the rubber hits the road, firms start actually dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's very useful that the regulators are going to be working together, or so they're saying, um, so we can confront some of these issues collectively and not in a vacuum. But I think firms should be or could be doing more um, as they prepare for, for these regulations. I think we all understand delivering projects and regulatory change projects within an organization, it's very deadline driven. Firms have been largely focused on delivering MIFID 2 as that has been the first deadline to drop and then deliver MIFID 2 and then move on to GDPR and other regulations that have an impact on how data is managed, such as Payment Securities Directive 2. I think what firms, and it's difficult to achieve this, is to take a step back and start looking at requirements more holistically. So what are the requirements of MIFID 2? What are the requirements of GDPR? What are the requirements of some of the other regulations out there? And understanding where those requirements map or align or where they contradict. You, know, you can see what's going to happen as we get into implementing GDPR. There's going to be work that's been done to deliver MIFID 2 that potentially needs to be reworked or undone because of some of the nuances and the requirements in, in GDPR. You know, system changes that have been made to help firms comply with MIFID 2, but not thinking about some of the maybe the, the data aspects within GDPR. So having to go back and retrace some steps because they've not looked at things holistically. With all the new regulations that have hit the markets over the last few years, firms increasingly rely on technology to meet their reporting needs. However, the buy side lags far behind the sell side in terms of the technology it deploys, with only 2% of buy side firms having a fully automated approach, according to IT Group research. In one of our earlier podcasts, Virginie O'Shea, Research Director at IT Group, talked to us about some of the reasons behind the low levels of compliance automation on the buy side. So I think one of the reasons that um, the asset managers have not automated is, is that they've been faced by so many different types of requirements. And I guess they do a lot of firefighting. So you get a lot of patchwork and chewing gum stuck together to, to make it try and meet the deadlines that are coming in. Also, the buy side has been less liable for data. Um, they've been reliant on their broker counterparts quite frequently when it comes to reporting and things like that. So I'd say that's probably one of the reasons that it's so low. Hopefully that's going to improve over the next few years, because I think there's a lot of requirements that are making them reevaluate their, their current technology situation. During that podcast, we also spoke with Mary Kupczynski, CEO and founder of Eight of Nine, a regulatory solutions company, about where buy-side firms are investing in automation. The areas where they're automating is things like trading platforms and speed of execution, technical staff to deal with a different side of their business. When it comes to compliance, they're not really interested in making a massive strategic investment because there's really no value in it. And to put it in perspective, so 
when it comes to very, very large, like the top 11 banks, when they are doing regulatory automation and investment, they're dealing with problems that are in the order of magnitude of hundreds of millions of dollars that they're able to save when they can move to more of an AI or a robotic solution. When you get to broker dealers and hedge funds, or even like some of the community banks, like uh, regional banks, their budgets for IT are more like $50,000 a year is a really big investment for them. And so when it comes to the service providers that deal with reg tech, the difference between being able to do a $10 million sale versus a $50,000 sale is huge. And so I think another issue that they have, in addition to their budgets, in addition to the fact that they're one and done, is that the service providers haven't made it to the point that we can reduce our prices yet. So we're able to build reg tech systems for the big institutions because they're willing to go in on the true development cost to build it out. And once those big players invest in it, slowly it will provide more flexibility for the service providers to charge less to bring it out uh, in mass scale. We hope you have enjoyed listening to our podcast and that you will continue to tune in as we talk to other industry experts on the subjects that matter to you and all derivatives professionals. Watch out for links to our podcast in our weekly and monthly newsletters, which you can sign up for for free on derivsource.com. If you have any comments on any of these topics or suggestions for topics we should cover in future podcasts, please drop us a line at editor at derivsource.com. We'd be glad to hear from you. Thanks for listening and join us next time. 